Mo'adim l'simcha. Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and today I'd like to address some of the textual, structural, and philosophical points that we didn't have an opportunity to discuss yesterday as we learned for the first time the laws that are addressed to Ami Yisrael with regard to the terms of Tuma and Tahara, particularly in the realm of forbidden and permitted foods. To remind you, we began with the laws of animals for consumption, starting with, immediately after a general introduction, the signs of pure animals and a list of four impure animals. The first time that we saw the terminology of Tamei in Pasuk Dalid, Ach etzel lo tochlu mimalehagira umimafriseha persa et hagamal kimalehagirahu uparsa eneno mafris tameihu lachem. We hear about those animals that do not have the signs of mafresa parsa shosa chesa and ma'alagira, of split hooves and chewing one's cud, as those that are not considered pure, or rather tamei, impure. Note that in the vernacular, we generally refer to these laws as the laws of kashrut. However, this is where Am Yisrael learn a little bit about the God mandates of how God has qualified them as Tamei. Immediately thereafter, we heard about the signs of permitted fish, which are snapir v'kaskeset, having fins and scales. And then in verse 12, kol asher ein lo snapir v'kaskeset b'mayim sheketsu lachem. Note how they're not defined as Tamei as impure, but rather Sheket, abominable or detestable, as we discussed yesterday. Immediately following the signs of fish that are permitted, we hear a list of forbidden birds, all of which share some qualities of birds of prey, carnivorous birds. And once again, they are not defined as Tamei, but rather Sheket. Verse 13, lo ye'achlu sheketim. And lastly, Sheret the prohibition of flying insects and the permissibility of four specific ones, ending with verse 23, Note that not everything is defined as tamay, but the last three categories are all defined as shekets. We then continued in verses 24 to 47 to focus on laws of tumah, laws of impurity, beginning with 24 to 28, the impurity of the carcass of an animal that does not have signs of kashrut, considered tamay, followed by the impurity of the carcass of eight creeping creatures and rodents and vessels that become impure from them, then the impurity of the carcass of an animal that is permissible to eat but is considered tamay once it's dead, and then 41 to 45, the prohibition of eating any sherets, any creeping creature. We discussed yesterday that they do not appear in the first section because they are going to be considered primarily tamay, because their laws are going to be involved not so much with consumption in as much as how they're going to transfer impurity to other objects. And that, as we concluded yesterday, is the reason why the laws of their prohibition with regard to impurity are mentioned before the prohibition of consuming them to teach us that tum'ah, that the impurity is the source of the prohibition of eating them. By the end of the chapter, there is no distinction between Sheketz and Tamei that we encountered in the first half of the chapter. As we find again in verses 41 to 44, 
כי אני אדוני אלוהיכם, והתקדישתם והייתם קדושים כי קדוש אני, ולא תטמאו את נפשותיכם באוכל אשר את הרומס על הארץ. כי אני אדוני המלא אתכם מארץ מצרים, להיות לכם לאלוהים, והייתם קדושים כי קדוש אני. All the things that swarm upon the earth are an abomination, a shekets. They shall not be eaten. Anything that crawls on its belly, or anything that has many legs, you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not draw abomination upon yourselves through anything that swarms. You shall not make yourselves impure, therefore, and thus become impure, vinitmetem. Rather, you shall sanctify yourselves and be holy. You shall not make yourselves becoming impure through anything swarming or anything that moves upon the earth. These verses all employ the term sheketz, something detestable, or an abomination, three times, the same number of times that the word tamay appears in its various forms. And why is this? The group of animals classified as sheketz has the unique characteristic of consisting of some creatures who transmit ritual impurity through contact with their corpses, as well as those who do not. All the other animals, the behemoth, the chayot, transmit just impurity, while the birds and the fowl do not. They are considered shekets, but they don't necessarily have a root of tum'ah, of impurity. Only the sheretz group consists of both types. From here we extrapolate that there are two underlying reasons for the prohibition against eating sheretzim, whether it's the eight sheretzim, that transmit impurity, thus accounting for the double expression of they are not only tamay, but also sheketz, they are an abomination. You shall not draw an abomination upon yourselves. You shall not make yourselves tamay and thereby become impure. Because these creatures in particular contain both the elements of sheketz, which warrant a prohibition against their consumption, and a component of tumah, which renders one impure upon contact with their carcasses. However, we're still left with a question as to why the Torah equates these two components, mentioning both Tumah and Sheketz, exactly three times with regard to Kol HaSheretz HaSheretz HaHaaretz, when the component of Tumah, earlier on in the chapter, applies only to eight out of these insects. After all, only eight creatures, or rather rodents, transmit impurity, while all the other insects in the world do not. They're all considered sheketz, but only eight are considered tamay, so why use equal terms for both? The answer seems to shed light on the entire reason behind tum'ah ascribed to these insects, and specifically to the eight species of rodents. It isn't just the creature's death that defines them as tamay, but rather the subsequent contact with them that causes the ritual impurity. Only the death of creatures who live near and among human beings, such as animals, rodents, they may transmit tum'ah whereas creatures who live or reside far away from human residency and activity, such as the fish and the birds, do not generate impurity upon their demise, teaching us that tum'ah and the qualification thereof is really dependent on mankind, namely that HaKadosh Baruch Hu qualifies the term of tamay even for objects beyond human beings with regard to how they relate to human beings. And this is emphasized by the concluding psukim, the problem with all these animals that contract tumah is bahim, the effect that it's going to have on us. Because God wants us as people to be holy and therefore not us to become tamay through these various creatures. As a matter of fact, the last basuk, the whole reason for these mitzvot is in order for us to be able to distinguish between what God considers tamay and tahor, 
subjectify to human beings. Later on, we're going to learn that the death of a human being generates the most severe form of tumah. A person's death is the strongest source of ritual impurity. Next then, it makes sense that the large land-dwelling mammals with whom man shares the earth. Even among the small swarming creatures, there exist some significant creatures. These are the rodents that live near or among human beings and therefore have earned their place in man's awareness. Man hunts them regularly for their flesh and their skin, and given their particular prominence, it is only their death, like the death of animals, that can transmit tum'ah, helping us understand why they are not only considered shekets, literally disgusting for man to eat, but also tummy. This may also help us understand why the prohibition of their consumption is only mentioned at the end, as both tame and sheketz, we find that the sheretz haaretz has no permitted species, and therefore the opening of the chapter, which began with zot hachaya asher tochlu mikol these are the animals which you may eat, does not really include the category of the sheretzim, of which none of them are permissible. In the next part of the shiur, we're going to try to understand some of these amorphous and rather ambiguous terms of tum'ah, with which uh, the chapter really introduces all different forms that we're going to see in subsequent shiurim of tum'ah. And yet, the text of the Torah itself doesn't really provide any rationale behind this. We've mentioned in previous shiurim how this is significant in order for us to appreciate that we're really meant to passively respond to the mandates of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, especially in contrast to Nadav and Avihu. The point of the divine laws is to help us appreciate that our observance is not conditional upon one's understanding of the laws. Observation is a function of one's spiritual commitment to Hashem's command that ultimately stands independent of any humanly assigned rational content. This is what we mean when we say, that we are the Avadim of Hashem. In other words, I observe these laws, let's say, of the prohibited and permitted foods, what we call today kashrut, though I may legitimately seek and perhaps even be enjoined to understand that observance, but ultimately I keep it because the Torah demands it, and not because I have rationalized, justified, or even exercised my mind to convince myself that it's reasonable. When one discusses the rationale of the mitzvot, one generally begins with the Rambam of the 12th century. Perhaps more than any other scholar, the Rambam stressed the central role of human reason in the forging of a connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and thereby fostering one's spiritual development. The Rambam attempted to synthesize the Torah's provisions and understanding of God mandates with classic Aristotelian constructs that at times was met a significant dispute even by his own contemporaries. Nonetheless, we find both colleagues and students that continue in the path of Rambam in attempting to understand some of the reasons behind these specific foods being rendered tummy. As we review the laws of forbidden foods as the Torah describes, we may divide them into a number of subcategories. We began with the land animals that in order to be fit for consumption must possess the two qualities of holy split hooves and must chew their cud. This in effect limits all the permitted animals to herbivores for they alone have a multi-chambered stomach that allows them to chew their cud, except for four notable exceptions to this rule, and those are the four creatures singled out by the Torah as possessing one, but not both of these qualities, and therefore they're also forbidden for consumption, the camel, the rock badger, and the hare that chew their cud, but do not possess split hooves, and the pig that possesses split hooves, but does not chew its cud. In the category of sea creatures, only those that have fins and scales may be eaten, which limits this to certain species of fish, but excludes all shelled creatures, aquatic mammals, cartilaginous species such as sharks. 
Regarding birds, the Torah tells us 20 specific birds that may not be consumed, and the common denominator is that they're all birds of prey. As of the insects, while the Torah permits a limited number of species from the grasshopper or locust family, other than temanim, most Jews do not necessarily eat them due to uncertainties concerning their proper identification. This is where the Rambam in Moren Vuchim establishes his views concerning these laws of permitted and permissible foods. I would say that all of those things that the Torah forbade us to consume are nutritionally harmful. Only the pig and the fats may be imagined to not be detrimental, but this is not so. The flesh of the pig is more humid than is beneficial and contains much superfluous matter. But even more than that, the Torah abhorred its consumption because of its great filth and because it feeds on filthy things. Therefore, concerning the signs that mark a permitted animal, chewing the cud and split hooves for the land animals and fins and scales for the fish, realize that their existence is not the reason for their permitted status, nor their absence the reason for their forbidden status. Rather, they are signs by which one may distinguish the healthy species from the unhealthy species. The Rambam understands that the rationale that stands behind the Torah's involved legislation concerning consumption is the physical health of the human body. Many foods are wholesome, some are harmful, but all of the various species prescribed by the Torah are nutritionally poor and hazardous to human health. The various signs that the Torah provides that effectively allow us to separate those species that we may eat from those that we may not are just that. They're signs. There are no magic qualities associated with split hooves and and chewing one's cud, or fins and scales, as if creatures possessed of these things are permitted to us because of them. But actually, these features are meant to provide us with a convenient and overt mechanism to recognize those species that are good for us physically while avoiding those creatures whose consumption may be harmful. The Rambam's thesis is not only reasonable, but also explains the entire gamut of the laws of kashrut with a single underlying principle, namely that all the animals, fish, birds that are prohibited are, for they are unhealthy and therefore harmful to our physical well-being. This may be jarring to what we've said in the past, namely that tumah and tahara are not necessarily reasonable terms, but rather God-mandated terms. The Sefer HaChinuch, a 14th century champion of reason and of the Rambam, comes to defend the Rambam in discussing this from a different perspective. He explains that at the foundation of this mitzvah, referring to kashrut, is to realize that the body is an instrument of the soul. For through its agency, the soul can execute its mission, and in its absence, its objective can never be completed. After all, truly, the soul entered the body for its benefit and not for its detriment, for God does good to all. So if the body is deficient in any respect, then the ability of the mind to fulfill its task is curtailed to our corresponding degree, and therefore the Torah distanced us from all things that bring ruin to the body. Or in other words, all these laws do stem from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and God knows us well, and God knows the best means through which we can maintain our relationship with Him and through the Mikdash, and that is through obeying his laws, which will simultaneously allow us to maintain physical health. I've incorporated the Maimonidean approach as prescribed in Morin Vuchim, the Guide of the Perplexed, particularly in order for us to see and appreciate different understandings of how to approach laws of Tumah and Tahara. But I'd like to conclude the shiur with the Rambam as he discusses the nature of Tumah and Tahara, not as he's speaking from a philosophical per- perspective, but rather from a legal perspective. In his discussion of Hilchot Bilah, the laws of immersion, he explains Tumah and Tahara 
by stating that it should be clear and obvious that the laws of Tumah and Tahara are decrees of the Torah that would not necessarily have been formulated by the exercise of human reason and logic. These laws are rather included among the chukim, divine injunctions, without an obvious rational basis. And this is what I'd like to return to because as soon as we start exploring the world of Ta'ameha mitzvot, the philosophical reasons, conceptual, spiritual goals behind the mitzvot, we are imparting our reason and to a certain degree rationalizing why we fulfill certain commandments of God. The bottom line, as we see in Parshat Shmini in particular, is that after the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, we have to be all the more cautious to follow the laws, as the Rambam explained, even if we don't understand them by the rules or exercise of human reason and logic. This serves not only as a natural ending or summation of Parshat Shmini, but also as a wonderful introduction for the parshiot that we're going to continue with over the next few weeks of Tazriya and Mitzorah, explaining other sources of Tum'ah. Parshat Shmini addressed Tum'ah and Tahara in one realm in particular, namely discussing sources of Tum'ah, animals, fish, fowl, insects that generate a condition of Tum'ah, what things are considered Tameh, and by what mechanism is Tum'ah transferred from one object to another. We're going to continue though, with speaking of the process of tahara, the ritual procedure necessary to dissipate a state of tumah and reinstate a condition of tahara which will enable a person to go to the mikdash. How does a person or an object overcome a state of tumah and achieve tahara in its stead? The third state will concern the impact of the circumstance of tumah and what limits this condition imposes upon the person or the object affected. Tumah we've already discussed does not appear to express any moral values, but rather divine imperatives. Tuma does not bear a function of a person's moral or ethical conduct. As a matter of fact, one can be very close to God while still being in a state of Tuma. He simply cannot go to the Mikdash. Tuma is a state which is a direct result of God's definition of a certain process. A process that in most cases allows a person to regain entrance to the Mikdash thereby appreciating through his distance what it means to come close again. By now it should be obvious then that the state of Tumah does not express itself in the realm of the physical, but is rather a state of being. With some notable exceptions, the state of Tumah imposes absolutely no qualifying factors upon the individual affected except with respect to the one critical limitation of denied entrance into the precincts of the Mishkan or Mikdash, and not being permitted to participate in the associated activity of partaking of sacrificial meats or sanctified foods. The degree to which one's entrance is curtailed is a function of the specific tumah with which one is affected, for the mishkan contains varying areas and degrees of sanctity. This qualification, in fact, is the one that the Rambam adopts as his underlying rationale for the series of laws of Tumah and Tahara. I'd like to end then, not only Parshat Shmini, but our Shi'ur today, of trying to understand the laws of Machalot, Tmeot, and Tahorot in the realm of the broader category that we're going to continue with of Dinei Tumah and Tahara, by ironically going back to how the Rambam explains in Moren Vuchim, the guide to the perplexed, the underlying rationale for these sets of laws of purity and impurity. So although he gave a reasonable, rational explanation 
for the laws of prohibited and permissible foods, he writes with regard to Tuman Tahara that we have already explained that the purpose of the temple was to inspire the visitor with the feelings of reverence and awe of God. It is well known that any encounter, no matter how exalted or noble, loses its efficacy when it is experienced regularly and its effect on the human soul and personality correspondingly decreases. Therefore, our sages have suggested that it is not preferable to visit the temple too regularly. This being the case, the Torah legislated such a multitude of forms of Tumah and barred those individuals in the state of Tumah from entering the temple in order to limit the possibility of being in a state of Tahara and therefore the opportunity of entry. If a person is able to avoid contact with an animal carcass, he'll be less able to avoid contact with a dead reptile or creeping thing, for they are quite commonly found in houses and in foods. If he succeeds in averting them, he will surely come into contact with a nida, a zava, a zav, or yoledet, not to worry, we'll learn about them next week, or touch the objects upon which they have alighted. All of these regulations are a means of limiting one's access to the temple and discouraging habitual entry to its precincts, thus preserving the reverential character of the place and safeguarding the purpose of instilling humility before God. If we place this explanation of Maimonides back in context of Parshat Shmini, then we certainly appreciate how this is all the more significant. Once Am Yisrael see the glory of God is manifest beyom Hashmini, understanding what the Mishkan is all about, learning Adam Kiakriv, that the goal is for us to get close to God, one may mistakenly think that one may initiate this closeness and one may have the Mishkan at one's disposal anytime one desires. And therefore, Hashem says, no, learn how to distinguish, learn the vicissitudes of this process of when you have access to the Mishkan and every once in a while in a very natural state, you're going to be denied access so that you will miss the Mishkan, you will long for the Mishkan, but ultimately you'll appreciate the sanctity of the Mishkan, the intensity of the Mishkan, and the objective of instilling humility before Hashem. Paradoxically, then, when we are in a state of Tumah, it is not disconnection from the Mishkan that we feel, rather greater reverence for Hashem. Next week, we shall continue with Parshat Tazria and attempt to define the ambiguous terms of Tumah and Tahara, not only with greater accuracy, but with greater understanding and precision, and not to see other forms of Tumah namely physiological forms of Tumah that we're going to find are eternally relevant for us.